You might recall that when we began this series, we looked at this world system and its influence. And one of the ways in this country, in this day and age, that the evil world system under the control of Satan is operating even in the life and mind of the Christian is in the area of materialism. And so money is key when we talk about materialism. Particularly for the believer in Christ, what we want to look at is what is termed financial stewardship. Now that stewardship is a pretty fancy word, but all it means in the New Testament is managing what belongs to another. And that's going to come out at one point during this message. Stewardship involves managing or administrating not your own, but what belongs to another. As believers in Christ, we want to think biblically about everything. The spiritually mature, spiritually minded Christian grasps the importance of thinking biblically about everything in life. We don't want to look through our own eyes, through our own lens on the various circumstances of life, the various situations, the various problems. We want to think God's thoughts after him. We want to understand how God and Christ view various things, and we want to view them in the exact same way. In fact, the scriptures are very clear on how we as believers in Christ can even begin to think biblically. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this in chapter 2. Now we, the we here is primarily the apostles. If you follow his argument, his line of reasoning, the we here are the apostles. But we have verses throughout the New Testament that speak of the rank and file believer in Christ also has received the Holy Spirit. And so we are justified to extend these truths that Paul explains here and states of the apostles, we are justified to extend them to all believers in Christ because all believers in Christ have received the Holy Spirit. According to Romans 8, if any man does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. Now we have received, Paul writes, not the Spirit of the world. We don't want that Spirit. We have been delivered out of that world system and the evil spirit that energizes and directs the course of that world system. We've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? For what purpose? So that we might know the things freely given to us by God. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit, so we can think biblically. Paul says this, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom. We don't want mere human wisdom, but in those words, so to speak, taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Where are you going to find those spiritual words? Obviously in the written Word of God. And he concludes his argument with this, but a natural man, an unsaved man, a non-spiritual individual. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. 
He rejects them. Why? They are foolishness to him. The unsafe person sees God's wisdom. It's not that he doesn't understand the concepts. An unsaved individual might understand the concepts involved, but sees no personal value for himself or herself. They don't accept it, they're foolishness. But it's not only that. Not only do they not accept it, they cannot accept it. They cannot understand them as to the personal value, the eternal value and worth of God's truth. Why? Because they're spiritually evaluated. And they are not a spiritual, a spiritual individual, a spiritually minded individual. They're the natural man. However, the believer in Christ is spiritual. He who is spiritual evaluates all things. As a believer in Christ, if you are a spiritually mature or growing in spiritual maturity, you want to evaluate and view everything, everything through the lens of God's word. That one who is spiritual evaluates all things, yet he himself is not evaluated by anyone. No one can evaluate him. Or her, that spiritual person goes through the trials of life almost like the Lord walking on the water by the power of his spirit. And the natural man looks, says, I, I don't understand what makes that individual tick. I don't, I don't get it. How can they do that? How can they have victory during the trials of life? How can they see value and wisdom in this old book, the Bible, they just don't get it. But the one who is spiritual evaluates every situation and God's word. Why? Because as Paul then says in verse 16 with a rhetorical question, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? No one. Who can instruct the Lord? His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So, how can we instruct him? We don't. He instructs us. We have the mind of Christ because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The believer's mind should not be influenced by the world, but by the Spirit of God transforming our mind into thinking God's thoughts after him. Those thoughts are found in his written word, the Bible. Paul gives this command, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed into the world's mold. A lot of you ladies, you've baked cookies, maybe even just Christmas cookies, and you have those different metal uh, cookie cutters, and you roll out the dough, and you stamp them, and now you have the shape of a tree or a star or whatever it happens to be. That's the world forming us into its mold. Don't let it do that. Instead, we're to be transformed like from a caterpillar to a butterfly by the renewing, not simply of our feelings, not simply of our emotions, but of our mind. Our emotions should grow out of a transformed mind. We can now rejoice in things that we never would have rejoiced in before. So with these introductory words, 
let's get into our topic this morning, the Christian and financial stewardship. Now, it's a sad fact that today in this country, this land of plenty, this land even now overflowing, as it were, with milk and honey to borrow the biblical phrase of the promised land that the Jews were going to, Christians today tend to go from one extreme to another, either spending or hoarding. Spending because the spirit of the world has gained some measure of control over their heart and there's materialism involved, hoarding out of fear. What will I have in the coming days? Can God provide for me in the coming days? And Christians tend to go between hoarding and spending. The truth is the path that divides between those. And you know what that path is? It's the path of giving. Now, we don't talk a lot about money here at Grace Gospel Church. We don't even pass the basket any longer. God provides. We don't want to try to force anyone to give or anything like that. But giving is the path that divides between spending and hoarding. It transforms our heart to not look at money the way the world looks at it, but to look at it as a means to glorify God and to further his kingdom. And that's going to come out as we get into uh, a New Testament passage. But to think biblically about money or financial stewardship, we need to look at financial stewardship first in the Old Testament because there's a great deal of misunderstanding about financial stewardship in the Old Testament amongst Christians. You can hear it on Christian radio, Christian television. We don't understand financial stewardship in the Old Testament. And then after we clear that up and we have a clear understanding of financial stewardship in the Old Testament, we'll move on to financial stewardship in the New Testament. So let's look at financial stewardship in the Old Testament. Financial stewardship in the Old Testament is based upon tithing. Now, tithing is a, uh, an older English word that literally means one-tenth or 10%. One-tenth. That's what the word means. That's all it means. It means nothing else but one-tenth. And financial stewardship in the Old Testament is based upon that 10%. What we need to understand is the Gospels in the New Testament, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a transitional period from the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, to the New Covenant, inaugurated in the blood of Christ. The Gospels are this transitional period that are covered by the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. Christ was a Jew. He fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. The actual church age, the New Testament period, dealing with the church didn't start till Acts chapter 2. In fact, all you have to do is think about it. What did Christ do on the night that he was betrayed? about 14 hours before he would be nailed to the cross, he said, take, eat of this bread. 
This is my body broken for you. Take, drink of this cup, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant inaugurated through his death. The new covenant for them. That didn't occur till 14 hours before he was nailed to the cross. Everything before that is clearly old covenant, mosaic covenant. It is not to be used when it references tithing, which is part of the law of Moses. It existed before the law of Moses, but to be sure, it was part of the law of Moses. That is not New Testament teaching for the church. We'll find out later on what is New Testament teaching relative to financial stewardship and money. What is for the church? When we consider tithing or money or financial stewardship in the Old Testament, we have to look at before the law of Moses, so from Genesis chapter 1 all the way up to Exodus chapter 19. All 50 chapters of Genesis and then 19 chapters in Exodus. It wasn't until Exodus 20 that the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So we'll look at it real quick. What was tithing like before the law of Moses? And then we're going to have a big surprise on what tithing is like in the Mosaic law. So prior to the Mosaic law, here's a passage that shows us about tithing. It's from Genesis chapter 14. Abraham, his original name was Avram, and then God changed it to Avraham. His nephew Lot was kidnapped by some wicked kings. And Abraham gets his men together and goes after them to deliver Lot and all of Lot's family and all of their animals and their goods that had been carried away. And we read what happens after Abraham and his men defeat the evil king and several other kings. After Avram's return from defeating Kedorla Omer, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed Avram. Blessed be Avram of God Most High. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Avram gave him a tenth of all. Abraham gave him a tithe, 10%. Of what? Everything Abraham had? No. The context tells us. There's two ways we know that what Abraham gave him was not 10% of everything Abraham had, but 10% of the spoils of victory earned through conquering Kedorla Omer and freeing Lot and taking spoils of victory. We see enemies right there in the context. But even more, God himself wrote a commentary on this. It's found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. This is God's commentary on the one-tenth on the tithe that Abraham paid to Melchizedek. In chapter 7, verse 4, 
beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this man in verse 4. Now consider how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of what? That's God's commentary. Spoils. That's actually there in the original Greek text that Hebrews is written in. It's not a tenth of every single thing. It's only of the spoils. I've heard Christians use this passage, and they say, well, you know, Abraham existed before the law, and so before the law there was a tenth that was given, therefore Christians need to give a tenth. Well, wait, that's just picking one detail. You want to use this passage to teach that Christians must give 10%? Well, it's 10% of whatever you happen to gain through the spoils of warfare against some evil person. So by all means, it would still be wrong to use it this way, but if you go to war against someone and you defeat them and you carry away their wealth, by all means, give 10% of that. This is not the way to use the scriptures. This is just a, de- a description of what accurately happened. It is not a prescription. It's not an instruction. Go and do likewise. All right, a prescription. If you went to, the, to our, our resident physician, Dr. Rowland, and he said, here, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Or he wrote out a prescription. That tells you what to do. Take two aspirin, not one, not three. Call me in the morning, not later that evening, and not two days from now. That is instruction. That's a prescription. This is merely a description. Do we have an exhortation here to go and do likewise? Do we have a command that we need to do this? No. This is just describing what took place. I mean, Abraham didn't trust in God. He tried to fulfill the promises of God in the flesh. So should we not trust in God? just because Abraham didn't, that's not the way to use historical stories that we find in Scripture. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. How about when we come to the Mosaic Law? If I were to ask you, how was giving done in the Mosaic Law, probably every one of you would say, tithing. And you would be right. Now, there were free will offerings above and beyond the tithe, but tithing. But if I were to ask you, what percentage of their annual increase of their crops, of their herds, of their flocks, of money that they made in business, what percentage did they give under the Mosaic Law, what would some of you probably say? you would probably say 10%. I mean, Paul, you already told us that a tithe was 10%, was one-tenth. You're right about the tithe, but if I were to ask you this, how many tithes were there in the Mosaic Law? Would you know the answer to that? There wasn't just one tithe. There was more than one tithe in the Mosaic Law. There were actually three tithes in the Mosaic Law. And here they are. Every year there was a Levitical tithe. And I've put the scriptures there. We're not going to focus on them. You read them. And if you have any questions, by all means ask me. And I'll explain to you how each of these tithes is different. But there was a Levitical tithe. 10% every year 
for the support of the Levites who didn't have an inheritance in the land. They served the Lord. Some of them were priests, others helped out the priests. They were descendants of one of the sons of Jacob, Levi or Levi. And so they were called Levites. This tithe, 10% every year, was for their support because they didn't have farmlands. They had a little land that they could farm outside of some cities, but not enough to really support themselves. And then there was a second 10% tithe, the yearly festival tithe. And that was actually bought, brought to Jerusalem probably three times a year when travel went to Jerusalem for three high holy days in the Jewish uh, religious calendar. And that was to be offered there to the Lord, eaten with your family, and shared with the Levites who were serving in the temple at that time. And then every three years, there was a poor tithe, another 10%. Depending on how you calculate this, it could be up to 30% every third year, or on average, about 23 and a third percent but the way numbers and percentages work, it could have been as low as 21.7%. My point is, not to explain all the math to you, but it was not just one ten percent tithe. It was significantly more. How did they do this? You've got to remember, in the Old Testament, before they had a king, a king who would tax them for great building projects, monuments to his ego, a king who would tax them to raise an army so he could get more land and acquire more wealth from other nations. The Jewish nation had no tax. They didn't have a federal income tax. They didn't have a state income tax. They didn't have local taxes. The only tax, so to speak, that they had were these three tithes. In this country, we have a lot of other taxes. I mean, if you were to add up the numbers, I mean, you, you could have a middle-class family uh, and they could be paying just in the taxes over 40%, maybe even over 50%, depending on where they fell. We're going to find out in the New Testament that there is no teaching whatsoever for the Christian on giving one-tenth. Uh, on giving 10%. The reality is, in this country, in this day and age, 10% is too much for some, and it's far too little for others. Keep that in mind, and we're going to see the principle explained in Scripture that governs how much we are to give. So let's look at financial stewardship in the New Testament, and we're just going to look at it under two headings the importance of financial stewardship, and the spirit of financial stewardship. And hopefully for the next year or two, this is the last you'll ever hear about money. Okay, we don't talk about it much here. It's probably been uh, 18 to 24 months since the last message on money. If it comes up in a passage, sure, we got to preach it. We're not going to say, oh, skip that. Johnson spoke on that six months earlier. You know, let's just make believe that's not in the word of God. If that happens, you'll hear an exposition just of that passage, but you're not going to hear all about stewardship. So let's first look at the importance of stewardship in Luke 16. Now, 
Some of you may be thinking, Paul, you just told us the Gospels were part of the Old Testament. But you're going to talk about financial stewardship from the, a Gospel passage? Yes, I am. Why? Because as you'll see, and if you recall the verses that Joey read for us, tithing was not mentioned once there. It's not about tithing and the Mosaic Law. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're going to look at have to do with the importance of all giving not just tithing under the Mosaic law. He doesn't reference the Mosaic law. He doesn't reference a tithe there. What he references, giving. And what giving, what financial stewardship indicates about an individual. And what financial stewardship has to do with something much larger, much more important than just money. So let's look at what our Lord says here. Faithful stewardship, our Lord wants us to know, begins with the little things. If you're going to be a steward of what God has entrusted into your care, it begins with the little things. Our Lord said he was faithful in a very little thing, is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous or unfaithful, unrighteous in a little thing, is unrighteous also in much. So it all begins with the little thing, whether we're faithful or whether we're unfaithful. The little thing first, and then on to the bigger thing. So we see that here. And now our Lord's going to tell us what the little thing is. Money is the little thing. If you have not been faithful in the use of what? unrighteous wealth. Remember he said, he was unrighteous in a little thing? Here, it's unrighteous wealth. Sometimes we think, money's not a little thing. Money is a big thing. Sure, we have bills to pay. We need to buy food. We need to pay rent or a mortgage. The Lord understands all that. But what he's trying to wake us up to is that money is a little thing in the grand scheme of things. There's not going to be money in heaven. We're not going to barter and, 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 and sell and buy in heaven. Money is a little thing because it only has to do with time, with our life on the earth. It doesn't have to do with eternity. How much bigger are the spiritual eternal truths than these truths of time? The Lord says money is the little thing. If you're unrighteous in a little thing, you'll be unrighteous in much. If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, he spells it out for us so clearly. This is an eye-opener to a lot of people because they're so focused on money, either spending or hoarding, either saving because they have a lot, or wondering how am I going to purchase the groceries for next week? We view money out of proportion to eternal truths. Don't misunderstand me. Money is necessary in this life. There's no doubt about it. What I'm talking about is our attitude regarding it, our focus on it more than on spiritual eternal truths. 
The Lord said money is a little thing. But then he tells us it's the little things that matter. If you have not been faithful in the use of own righteous wealth, if you're not faithful in that, who will entrust the true riches to you? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? If you name the name of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, if you've trusted in his finished work of salvation on the cross, there should be things more important to you than money. But if you haven't been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, the little thing, who will entrust true riches to you? If you love the Lord this morning, you want to serve him in some capacity. You want to please him with your life. Your life should be characterized by devotion and commitment to him. You might want some kind of ministry for him. However, the Holy Spirit has gifted you to function in the local church. You want to serve the Lord in that way. That's the true riches. Not just money for time, but a life of service and worship that doesn't just end with death, that continues throughout eternity when we see him. I mean, you can't read the book of Revelation, but notice that a very prominent theme is the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father by the saints, by his children, by the redeemed, by the believer throughout eternity. That's the true riches. And some of that grows out of our ministry here on earth because we see crowns are awarded for faithful stewardship and then those crowns are used to worship the Lord and are cast at his feet in the book of Revelation. The little things matter, the Lord is saying here. If we're not faithful in the little thing money, who will entrust true riches to you? I'm wondering if there's anyone here this morning in their own heart, honestly before the Lord, if they recognize that maybe they haven't been as faithful in the little thing, money, and if they wonder, well, if that's true, could that be why I don't have all the joy of the Lord in my Christian life? Why my relationship with the Lord God and his beloved son, Jesus Christ, seems distant? Why the reality of Christ and a heart overflowing with appreciation and gratitude, why that seems to be lacking? Could that be that maybe you and I, at times, are not faithful in the little thing? I can think of nothing greater in this life than to know Jesus Christ and to make him known. That's the, that's the slogan or motto of Grace Gospel Church, isn't it? You know that better than me. You've been here much longer than I have. That's a true riches. That's true wealth, to know Christ, to, to be so deeply and intimately acquainted with him that it's like he's right there with you as you walk through life. Is that a true riches, true wealth to you? I hope it is. I pray it is. 
But that reality of the living Christ in all his power and all his glory causing your soul to shine in, in, in great light, pure white light, that's not going to happen if we're unfaithful in the little thing. The true riches don't come to us if we're unfaithful in the little thing. Here's another truth that the Lord brings out here, a reality check. How often have you heard people say that I'm going to give 10%, 20%, 7.5%, doesn't matter what the number is. I'm going to give to the Lord some of my money, some of my wealth. Do you know that's not the biblical picture of it? All our money belongs to the Lord. 100% of it belongs to the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, as Moses is instructing the, the young generation about to enter the promised land after wandering in the wilderness, he says to them in Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, before that he says, when you come into the land and, and you are living in houses that you didn't build, you're harvesting that first year of crops which you didn't have to plant. The Canaanites who fled before Israel planted them. When you have all these goods, don't say in your heart, my hand has made me this wealth. He says in verse 18, it is the Lord God who gives you power to make wealth. Anything you and I have comes from the Lord. It all belongs to him. He says, look at this. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. He already said it's wealth. The wealth isn't ours. It belongs to another. Who will give you that which is your own? See, it's not that we're giving 10% or 20% or 5%, whatever. It's not that we're giving that that belongs to us, to the Lord, he's letting us keep 90%, 95%, 70% of what he's given to us. What a gracious, loving father we have. He lets us keep, in most cases, far more than we give back to him. The reason why this is so important is there can only be one Lord in your life and mine. This is the very next verse, the final verse of this short teaching on financial stewardship and the importance of it that our Lord gives. He's given this teaching more than once in the Sermon on the Mount, but he also gives it here. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold and cling to one, be devoted to one, and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and anything else. There is only room for one Lord and master in any person's life. So, what is it that masters you and I today, this morning? Who or what is the Lord of your life and mine? There can be only one Lord. Let's look at now, having seen the importance of financial stewardship, let's look at the spirit of financial stewardship that's found 
in the New Testament scriptures addressed to the church. Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And he planted a church there. He spent 18 months. The only place he stayed longer was in Ephesus for three years. He greatly focused on this church. And he's going to explain to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in a letter that he wrote to them, the spirit, the true heart spirit of financial stewardship. The first thing he's going to want us to know is that reward will be in proportion to giving. He says this, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow bountifully, reap bountifully. The reward, what we reap, will always be in proportion to what we sow. I want you to see that financial stewardship is not just the act of giving. It has this focus to glorify God, and it also benefits us. It's not, oh, you know, I could really use that $10, but I'll give it to the Lord. That's not the right attitude. Giving has benefit both in this life, as we'll see in this passage, and throughout eternity. But reward will always be in proportion to giving. Giving should be purposeful. It shouldn't be haphazard. We should have a plan for how we return to the Lord some of what he's given to us, some of what he's blessed us with. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. We should have a plan that we attempt to follow. Sure, sometimes uh, unexpected bills or a life situation may, may occur that interrupts that plan. God understands that. He's the sovereign Lord over our circumstances. It didn't take him by surprise. And maybe uh, we have to reduce our giving or even stop it for a period of time. God knows all that, but it's what's in our heart. And he knows what's in our heart because God does not see as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, God tells Samuel, but God looks upon the heart. So he knows what's in our heart. Giving should be purposeful. Giving should be willing. Each one must do, not grudgingly or under compulsion. This is the spirit. The, The Jews were required to give in their tithes. In fact, they also had a temple tax. Exodus 30 brings it out. You can read about that temple tax in Matthew, in Exodus 30 and in Matthew 17. Some Jews come to Peter. Does your master, Jesus, pay the temple tax or not? And Peter comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, go fishing. You're going to catch a fish, and in its mouth is going to be a coin that will pay the temple tax for both you and I. Our giving is not required as to a certain amount or percentage. Each one 
must do, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For some people, that might be 40% if the Lord has blessed them and they're able to do that. For others, it might be 20 or 10. In the case of some people, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth has ordained the circumstances of their life where maybe it's 4% until the Lord changes that. This is something between the person and their Lord. And that should be important to them, to please their Lord, even in this area of their life. Giving should be willing. This is one of the main reasons, this verse, that the elders of Grace Gospel Church decided that we will never pass an offering basket on Sunday mornings again. That basket going by someone could make them feel like, I have to give. I really don't have it this week. I need to buy groceries. We don't want to do that. Sure, if they put something in and they know they shouldn't have, that's on them. But we don't want to be party to that. We don't want to give them a reason to feel that they have to be compelled to give and to give grudgingly. We sh giving should be willing, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Giving should be cheerful. Each one must be a cheerful giver. It should be cheerful. Look, you know, I, I, I love, and it hasn't happened very often, but I've been able to lead people to faith in Christ. I mean, uh, if, if the number of people versus the number of times I shared my faith were my batting average, I'd be warming the bench in, in the most minor league ball that, that you could play. It doesn't happen very often. But it, it brings me great joy to share the gospel. Giving should bring us a similar joy. God loves the cheerful giver. It says right here, God loves a cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Imagine that. When you and I give cheerfully, we experience the love of God upon ourselves. Not when we give out of compulsion. Not when we give because, well, that's just what we're supposed to do. But you will feel God's love. And I don't just mean experientially but in your relationship and you walk with him when you give cheerfully because it's part of being an obedient Christian. Never fear giving. God can provide for you. Now, this is not going to be prosperity gospel. Sow your little seed of faith and watch how much God blesses you with. No, that, that is an unbiblical doctrine. And you're going to see what the real biblical doctrine is in this passage. But never fear giving because God is able. When is God ever not able to do anything he desires to do? God is able to make all grace abound. He doesn't just give us a tiny bit of grace. Here, that's all I'm giving you. No, all grace abound, overflowing. He heaps grace upon us. He's able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. God makes sure we have everything that we need. But this is not prosperity gospel. Oh, if I send in 
this money, oh, then I'll be able to buy myself a new Mercedes. God will bless me. That's, that's not the teaching here. You want to see what the teaching is? Here's the teaching. God will provide all you need to serve him in giving. Look at the rest of the verse. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may have an abundance, not necessarily for the new car, not necessarily for the bigger house. He blesses with an abundance for what purpose? For every good deed. The one who shows himself faithful, remember the Lord's teaching, in the little thing, will show himself faithful in much. Here's the much, every good deed. Every good deed is the much. Paul is pretty much teaching what our Lord himself taught. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And he will bless when our heart is right. And we view his continued blessing as a means to glorify him more. To do good deeds for him. He will bless us. That's the promise here. God will bless us. So that we can do even more for him. Not so we can squander it on ourselves. Not so we can hoard or we can spend. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is the gospel of doing more for God. More for Christ. So let me ask you this morning. Today, will you begin to recognize that all that you and I have really belongs to God? He's only entrusted it to us for a time to see how we manage it, how we use it to bring him glory. Will you recognize that giving is a true measure of your spiritual faithfulness? It's the little thing. If we're unfaithful in the little thing, we're unfaithful in everything else. It is a test. It is a measure. It's a yardstick of our spiritual, our overall spiritual faithfulness. So what I, I hope you take away from this is we're not asking you to give any money to Grace Gospel Church. We're not forcing you to give out of the Lord's provision to you to Grace Gospel Church. This is Christ's church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is his lampstand. He walks in our midst, and that lampstand will, will continue to shine brightly for him as long as he wants it to. It doesn't depend on any man here, not me, not the elders, not anyone else. He's able to raise up from stones children to Abraham. Someone stops giving, he's able to bring in through the door someone who could give ten times as much if he wanted to. I mean, this beautiful facility has a mortgage, it has bills, but we're not asking for anything from you other than to be faithful to the Lord as you have purposed in your heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know whether you're going to spend eternity in heaven, Newsflash, you can't buy your way there. 
even if you gave every penny you had, you cannot buy the salvation that Christ provided through his death on the cross. When he hung there bearing the sins of the world in his body, experiencing the wrath and judgment of his holy father, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you've never trusted him, you cannot buy his salvation. You cannot work for his salvation. When he hung there, he said just before he died, it is finished. It has been completed. The work of salvation is done. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't pray for it. You can't attend church for it. You can't serve in church for it. It is a free gift that he gives to anyone who will cry out to him acknowledging that they're a sinner and ask God to save them. So if you're here this morning, I would urge you, turn from your sin, turn to God in Christ, cry out to Jesus for salvation. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God doesn't want your money. He wants your devotion. He wants you to believe in his beloved son. Would you do that this morning if you don't know him? Many of us made that decision years ago, and we've never regretted it. It's the best decision we ever made in our life to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, how we thank you for your word that, that it is an encouragement to us, that it doesn't lay down a harsh mandate, do this or that. We thank you that you are understanding of us and our situation in life. But we ask, dear God, that by your Holy Spirit, would you be pleased to help us to view money in a different way? Oh, dear God, we recognize this morning that it all belongs to you. Fill our hearts with love and gratitude and devotion that we would cheerfully and willingly give back to you as you profit us. Oh, Lord, help us to view financial stewardship from a biblical perspective, from the way you view it. Help us not to sow sparingly, but to sow bountifully. For your name's sake, for your glory, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we know your love when we give cheerfully. We owe everything to you. You owe us nothing. And yet you still love us when we give cheerfully. And we, we thank you for that. And so, dear God, as we go from this place, may it be with a renewed desire to think biblically and to view all things, even unrighteous wealth, from a divine perspective. To view it as you view it. And so may we bring you honor and glory in this way.